Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where we explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this episode, I'll be talking to Madeleine Black, an author, speaker, sexual violence activist, former psychotherapist, and host of the acclaimed international podcast called Unbroken, Healing Through Storytelling. After decades of silence, Madeleine decided to share her own story publicly online in September 2014, and she completely underestimated what the response would be. She published her book, Unbroken, in 2017, a must-read. I first met Madeleine in 2019, and we have walked a bit of a journey of sharing ever since. She is passionate about speaking out to end the shame, stigma, and silence surrounding sexual violence and to help others find their courage and voice too. Welcome to Win at Work and Life, Madeleine. Oh, hi, Nikki. So lovely to join you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, such a pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and sharing it with our listeners. Now, you and I go back away and I know your story, but I want to start off with talking about your latest TED talk entitled, Why I'm Shaming Shame. And in that talk, you use a wonderful analogy of a beach ball to illustrate the cost of staying silent and the paralyzing fear associated with keeping your story a secret. It's a really powerful metaphor, and I would love you to explain it to our listeners in the context of your own story. Sure. Well, it was the very first time I had spoken at a conference and there was also a psychotherapist who specialized in trauma speaking. So I have to admit, I heard this analogy from her and she spoke about the pressure of holding a beach ball uh, under the water is the same pressure that we feel when we don't want people to hear our stories. You know, we have that constant fear of being found out. You know, what if people know what have happened to me and because my the last TEDx was in lockdown, it was in this little office, just with everything moved out of the way, I thought I have to use some props. I'd never use a prop in my life, but this always stayed with me when I heard this woman talk about that constant pressure of keeping our beach balls under the water. And I thought, oh, it's a very cheap prop to buy from Amazon, but it was just, I just thought I wanted a visual for people to get it. So it's not just people with sexual trauma. We all hold secrets and, and shame for lots of different reasons and we all have a fear of being found out so I just it always stayed with me I just thought it was very powerful. Madeleine our listeners don't know your story can you give us a thin slice of a very complicated messy story really? Yeah Um, yeah it's really um, sadly the story of many people when I was 13 I went out with a girlfriend we got very very drunk and the night ended disasterly, awfully for me, because um, the two young men who took us home proceeded to rape and torture me over four to five hours. And only when I wrote my book, I realized I'd actually been raped three more times because I had no understanding of consent either. So yeah, my story is one of sexual violence, really. And it's a story that took you almost 40 years to write. So it was a very, very long time span of keeping that beach ball underwater. And then you chose to share that story. How did the impact of sharing the story, we know it's impacted on other people and given them courage, but 
How did it help you to finally give your story, bring it into the light of day? It was terrifying and it was liberating. You know, um, when I first shared it with the Forgiveness Project, they said you didn't need to put your photo or your or your name. And I just thought, I'm, I'm really tired of being just ashamed for a crime that was committed against my body. So I did obviously share it with my photo and my name. And I just realized very quickly what Marina meant when she called us, Marina is the founder of the Forgiveness Project, what she meant when she called us story healers rather than storytellers. So within a few weeks, I had lost track of how many people had got in contact with me to share their story. And people that said, I can't like your post, I can't comment, because then people would know this has happened to me. So, so many private messages, emails, my website blew up, and people shared their story for the first time. They'd never told anybody before. And I just really saw the impact that comes when we share our stories, that we can be this ripple effect for other people. We can give them permission to be vulnerable if we've been vulnerable ourselves. But more important, I think when we open up and share, then we start to heal as well. You know, what we just um, uh, resists persists really, doesn't it? So the, the less we are with what happens to us, the more it's around in our bodies and how it impacts our daily life. So if we can find the courage to speak to someone about it, then it makes a huge difference. I've got a quote here, which I think speaks to exactly what you've been saying. And it says, you are not a victim for sharing your story. You are a survivor for setting the world on fire with your truth. And you never know who needs your light, your warmth, and your raging courage. And I think that that's exactly the work you've now stepped into in packaging your story, obviously, as a book, as a presentation, and as a podcast. And in that podcast, you actually interview other survivors of trauma and I was one of those so it's in a way I want to say normalizing trauma because that sounds really cheesy because we shouldn't make trauma normal and yet so many people in fact probably most people in their lives suffer, suffer some kind of trauma big or small I talk about life tremors or life quakes and in your situation, this was a massive life quake. And trauma just seems to impact on so many different layers and levels of our body, our psyche, our very cells. You took a long time to get to the place where you could share your story publicly. But what are some of the things that you did in the in-between years to help you to uncover your story for yourself, to come to terms with your story? And it wasn't all traditional psychotherapy. You did some other interesting things did, too. Yeah. Why? I just want to go back a little bit on what you said about the quakes or the tremors. So sometimes what we think is a quake might just be a tremor for someone else and vice versa. So I do believe it's not really what happens to us. It's about what we do with it and how it impacts on us because everybody's going to be affected by a similar situation so differently. But back to your question about me, I, I thought, you know, I just somehow was always guided and the right people just seemed to come in at the right time. So for a long time, I just went to talking therapies and that seemed to help a, a lot. Um, I became a mother, which is something I thought I would never do. I told my husband I was too scared to give birth because I thought it would be like being raped again. But I decided that 
if I didn't do it, then they've won. You know, they've taken all my power away and they don't even know that they're, they're doing that. So I have had three gorgeous girls. So that was a huge healing corner for me. And I thought that was it. But what I've learned professionally and personally is the trauma is in layers. You know, we, we work a certain amount and we think we're okay and then bam, it comes back again and we have to peel the onion layers again. So it's constantly peeling those onion layers. And it was the very last time really that I went for therapy and I was caught in denial. I didn't want to believe all these memories that had returned when my daughter turned the same age. She turned 13 and I was studying psychotherapy and bam, it all came back. And he said, you know, you could um, try some therapeutic massage. And I just thought, okay, I'll go along because I, I couldn't connect my head to what my body was saying. And the very first time I went along, I heard this person screaming and shouting and crying and kicking with the therapist. And I thought, who is making all that noise? And then I realized it was coming from me. And I was just, first of all, I was mortified because, you know, I'm a nice London English woman. We don't make such a scene, make such a fuss. But then I realized my body wouldn't behave that way if there wasn't something in there. I, I would not want to behave that way and cause such a, a noise or a fuss on purpose. So it actually, even though I was embarrassed, it was actually very confirming. So then that then sent me on this path, I guess, of what you would call alternative therapies. So some of the things that I've tried, it's always been about getting back into my body, you know, because on that night, I really left my body. It was a very much an out of body experience. And I never felt back in and I never felt grounded. So most of the things I did were to land me back in my body. So I've done about 50 sweat lodges. I've taken San Pedro, which is a little bit like ayahuasca, not as heavy duty. I've done sound therapy. I've done transformational breath work. I've done music therapy. I, I use a lot of sport, you know, karate, running, windsurfing, just different approaches to land me back in my body. And I, you know, I recognize that I'm fortunate that I have the, the funds to pay for all of these therapies because it's not available to everyone. But there will be a way for someone out there. You don't have to do all the things that I've tried. And I always say my book isn't a self-help book. This is just the way that I tried it. Some people might go, hmm, that's a bit crazy. Or hypnosis. I tried hypnosis as well. Lots of different things. And I've also, I guess, the biggest influences that I've been to I've been a student of a man, I guess you would call him a shaman, a man named Imaho for many, many years, uh, 15, 20 years. And, and he was the one who encouraged me to write my story, which took about four years to write 12 pages. But that really was, that started me on this chunk of this journey. So, yeah, I tried many, many, many things. Mm. So the message really is that everybody is different and everybody's going to deal with their trauma in a different way. <clears throat> but it is a quest. It is a, a hero's journey to delay and get to the core of the trauma and to find out what the triggers are. You mentioned that your daughter turned 13 and that brought everything back. So we never know when we're going to be triggered. I've also, like you, used many alternative therapies because I think that sometimes we get stuck in our heads and you were saying you needed to get back into your body and get grounded. And I have experienced exactly the same sort of thing after my husband's death. I had to find a way to make sense of it all from many different perspectives, not just the story going around and around in my head, but how it was impacting on my body 
And cellular memory is a massive, massive thing. So yes, I've also done the sweat lodges and the hypnotherapy and the psychotherapy and recently did a psilocybin journey as well. And to drop the inhibitions of the left side of the brain, to let the right side of the brain come out to play, because that's where all the real stuff, the gungy, messy stuff is, is hiding. And sometimes if you're not a talker, and I am a talker, and I think you are a talker. So talk therapy actually works quite well for us. Well, I'm a talker now. I wasn't, I mean, when I used to go to therapy, I would revert back to that 13 year old. So I, I couldn't literally speak. So it was, for me, the, the body therapy was very good because I didn't have to speak. Yes, exactly. So, I, you know, not everybody is a talker. And I think we have to recognize that. And um, whether you're a talker or not, that body therapy or any kind of alternative therapy might help you to access something that's stuck. And it's those stuck, repressed memories and emotions that become really toxic in your system. Did you have physical symptoms over the years while you were keeping that ball under the water? Yes, so many. I had an eating disorder. I struggled with depression. I used drugs, alcohol, I had fears, phobias, anxieties. I mean, when we, I was just in London a few weeks ago and we drove past the block of flats and I had my youngest daughter in the car and I said, these are the flats where it happened. And, and for years, I couldn't even drive past the block. I would just have to go another way. I would feel sick. I would feel ill. I would shake. I would, you know, get flashbacks. Every time I saw a certain type of jacket, a certain type of hair, I would imagine I could smell them, see them, hear them. They were following me everywhere. It wasn't. It was all in my mind. So, yeah, my, my day was filled with a lot of fear, really, as well as all my phobias. So... Wow. So, so there's, is, is there a sense of numbing out that yeah. sometimes people use to avoid going there? Yeah, no sense. I did it. <laughs> I did it for years and years and years because, you know, it's like depressing. I wanted to push it as far away from my head as possible. I didn't, why would you want to remember that your worst, your darkest shadows, chapters of your life? But ultimately I know that I had to face it. You know, the years of pressing it away, pushing it down, didn't help because it has to come out in other ways. And it did come out in other ways. So ultimately, the way in is always going to be the way out. I love one of the stories you shared recently of an elderly woman who heard you, was it on the radio or on the podcast, sharing your story? And she had repressed something for how long? How old was she? And what was the Benefit of uh, she was a South African lady, so that's why you maybe remember her, but she lives in Leeds. She thought she didn't have a big story. She was adopted, but she just never felt good enough. And I said, I think a lot of people will resonate with that because they say, well, I don't have a big story. They apologize in advance to me, you know, they don't have a big story. And I said, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's how you feel. So she never felt adequate enough. She just never felt good enough. It took till she was in her 50s, I think, Jen, like 55, and she went for um, some energy healing and it just resonated with her. She's now an energy healer herself. She's now early 60s, I'd say, 62, 63, and really happy to be who she is. Really okay, doesn't want to change anything. So she said it took till I was in my mid-50s to accept who I actually am. And that, I, think that's, I think that's a journey for everyone, really, isn't it? Accepting who we are with the flaws and everything. Absolutely. Are we ever truly over our trauma? 
You know what I actually think we can do? I used to think I'm never going to drain my swamp. I mean, I've been working it and working it for years. I didn't want this cloud of trauma hanging over me. And I think you can get to a place now called post-traumatic growth. And I think that's really what I have because I don't think I'd be able to speak about it if I was affected by what happened to me. And people assume that, oh, it must be so re-triggering every time you speak about it. But actually it does the opposite. Every time I speak about it, I think about who's hearing it, who's listening, what difference it can make to them. And my shame just evaporates more and more and more because I know I have nothing to be ashamed about. You know, not what I was wearing, not what I was drinking. I didn't invite this in. I didn't cause this. It was them. They chose to rape me. So it was nothing to do with me at all. It wasn't a personal against me. It was just wrong place, wrong time. And they just took advantage of an opportunity that they saw. So I don't take it personal anymore. And I think absolutely it's shown me how strong I am. And if I have that in me, everybody has that in them as well. I don't have superpowers. We can all tap into that resilience that's within all of us. How does dealing with your trauma impact on boundaries? Because you were talking about consent earlier, which really links to having boundaries and being assertive enough to implement boundaries. Can you shed some light on, on that in relation yeah. to your story? And, and I think boundaries is a big thing for everybody. Yes. Yes. You know, you want to stay the nice person, the likable person, the team player. I mean, this can play out at work, but it can also play out in terms of your personal safety. Yeah, well, for me, one of the other side effects, I became very promiscuous. You know, I was really scared to say no to any guy who tried it on. I thought it's going to get violent again. So I just let them do whatever they wanted. I also had no self-respect or care for my body at that point. And so then I developed a name. So the more I became promiscuous, the more I invited attention. And I just really thought I'd had bad sex. That's what I really thought it was. But then only when I wrote my book, I realized that there were three occasions where I just said no and they just carried on and I think because I was operating from such a, a trauma filled mind I was filled with so much self-loathing and hate for myself and disrespect and worthlessness I just let them do whatever I wanted and it's only as I healed I'm not saying that I was to blame that was the trauma it's only as I healed I saw that I, I wasn't able to say no or to say this isn't on I just went along with it because it was the easiest option for my mind that was so traumatized. I thought, just get it over and done with. This is all I'm good for, or whatever I was thinking at that time. But it only comes in a place, I think, when we are healed from whatever harmed us and when we're feeling more confident to find our voice, to say, actually, no, this doesn't feel right. So many times I might have thought this doesn't feel right, but I wasn't able to verbalize it or to make some kind of action to say, no, this is, this is not on. So, yeah, consent is... Or boundaries they, they are huge topics but it's it takes courage to really stick to your boundaries I and mean, we know if ever of us have been, been a mum you know and your kids wearing you down and they want one more chocolate button and you're saying no it takes a lot of guts to oh, stand strong because you know what the what the outcome could be with a little toddler especially so it took a lot to really learn to just stay steady and I think that's come with my work personal work of being grounded and once you're grounded you can make decisions from a better place not from a place filled with trauma mm. so you've got three beautiful daughters and obviously over the years you've shared aspects of your story with them how would you advise people who are listening who've got children um, who've got young teens or um, 
daughters, particularly in their early 20s, even boys, how would you advise them to talk about consent and boundaries with their children? I would advise them to talk, you know, just be honest, have conversations, be open, um, just bring it up and just say you're always here for them, support them, you know, be honest. And, and even though I say that and I do that, they're all very different. One will tell me everything, one will tell me nothing, one will tell me eventually a few months later. But just, I always wanted to let my kids know that no matter what they've done, I will always be there, that me and my husband will always come and collect them if they're out, if they're scared, if they're drunk, if they're stoned, whatever, whatever's going on, you know, I will always be there for them. And we've had that on a few occasions when my oldest got drunk for the very first time. Um, she didn't want to call, she wanted to call me, but her friends stopped her from calling me. They were worried she'd get into trouble. Eventually she convinced them and she said, you know, I told you my mum would come for me. And we did, we just went straight round. There was no drama. We didn't have a go at her because she's got to learn as well. If we protect them too much, they never learn. And then after she realised, mum, anything could have happened to me. And, and she meant not just be attacked, but... Um, could have been robbed, she could have been run over, she could hardly stand, I had to undress her while she was throwing up and take out her contact lenses. And uh, it wasn't about the fact that she was drunk, it's the fact that she could, you know, come to me and, and tell me. So it's important to be open for me. You know, obviously I was always scared about my own safety, then that transferred onto my kids' safety. So I've maybe gone a bit more than the average person, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I think just be honest and have conversations. Yeah, if we've had a trauma in our own lives, it's so easy to overreact, isn't it? And to try and wrap our children in cotton wool. So if we're talking about trauma in all its forms, if somebody listening to us today is triggered, what is the first thing that you would advise them to do? Yeah, triggers are, are very weird because they take you straight back and it feels so real in that moment. I mean, even, even good triggers, like if we hear a song which takes us back to a happy time, we're there instantly. So, you know, some people that don't understand triggers find that weird that if you hear a smell or you see a building or you hear a sound or you're there instantly and your body takes over, you know, the flashbacks, the racing heart, the sweatingness, the shakiness, the feeling sick. But actually, what I learned was to, like a contraction, to embrace it, to actually say, well, thank you. This is one less that I ever need to face. And this is actually because my mind is now thinking I am in a good space. That I can, I can um, respond to these triggers. They are here to help me heal because I think when we don't have them, they stay stuck in our body, as you say, the cellular memory. So every trigger is an opportunity for you to just watch the show to stay as steady as you possibly can to ground yourself and breathe through it and just to let yourself know this isn't real this is just residue from the trauma this isn't happening again this is just the pictures it's just like watching a movie and then I got so good at watching the movie that I could just watch the movie now and it doesn't really affect me anymore so it's an opportunity even though it's a very tough thing to go through mm. and in terms of making oneself supportable you mentioned that you met your husband and then you thought, well, maybe you'll never have children because it would be the equivalent of being raped again. How pivotal was his support in your healing journey? Yeah, so he's 
being, um, and I always used to say he was an angel sent to me because I think if I hadn't met him at the time when I had, which I was only 17, um, I don't know where I would have gone. I was beginning to go off the rails big time. So he's doesn't say much, but he's very calm. He's very solid. He's very grounded. And any of the therapies that I did, he might not have come along. He might not have agreed with them. But he said, if they help you, then, then just go do it. You know, so I guess it's really unconditional love. You know, that's really what it's been about. And if you really want the best for someone, you will support them no matter what it is. You don't have to agree with what they do, which a lot of the time is like, no, thanks. You just go to that. That doesn't sound for me. Um, but if it's good for you, just go. So, yeah, he's just always been a really good, calm uh, supporter, which I guess is kind of the opposite of where I was at when I was all over the place. Uh, so he really held the space for you. And that's a it's a beautiful concept. And not everybody is fortunate to have somebody who can hold the space for them without going hysterical, yeah. without, I guess, trying to fix you. That's the other thing. Um, do you believe that healing, in a way, happens in its own time? That there is, for everyone, there's a different kind of timeline. Some people are able to get straight into the healing process. Some, for some people, like for you, it took a long time to acknowledge where you'd been, what had happened and to start unpacking that trauma. And sometimes from the outside, we can see what's happening to somebody, but it's a bit of a case of, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. How often is that the case? Oh, well, a, when I worked as a therapist, I often could see where it had to go, but I can't do someone's journey for them. They've got to do that. I can facilitate that journey with them, but I can't advise them or show them the way because you can't get there until you get there. So I guess what I'd like to say to people listening, it's not a competition. It's, you know, for me, it wasn't a sprint. It definitely was a marathon, a very, very slow marathon that took decades. But um, I guess it takes however long it takes. Some people can work it quicker. Some people can't. Uh, some people have good support. Some people don't. So just stay in your own lane, you know, drive your own car. Don't worry about other people. I remember a different thing when my father had passed away. I went back to work about a month afterwards. It came out of the blue. It wasn't expected. And my girlfriend's mum had passed away about a week before my dad. And she was back at work at two weeks. And I went back to work. I was working at Women's Aid. So it was working with women that were abused. So it was very, I guess, traumatizing work. And I, they just kicked me out. They said, you can't be here. You know, you need to go home. And it was another six weeks. And I think, oh, she's gone back just two weeks later. And it's taken me 10 weeks. But uh, don't do that. Don't compare yourself to other people. Everybody's journey is so personal to them, their own resources. And I don't mean financial resources, their own personal resources, you know, their abilities. And I just think I just did it at the pace that I could do it. I couldn't have done it when my kids were little because how could I be a mum and deal with all that as well? So I, I had to do it when I had to do it. Which I try not to have any regrets at all because what's the point? Can't change anything about it. Yeah, I like to say to people, don't compare your trauma to mine. Nobody's trauma is bigger or smaller than anybody else's. Whatever you're dealing with right now is big for you. Absolutely. And you need to acknowledge that. And it's up to you whether you step onto that journey of self-discovery or not. I like to reframe dealing with trauma as you mentioned, the, the peeling back the layers of the onion. But in a way, if you're curious about what you might find, 
it makes it a little more palatable if it's a journey of discovery as opposed to framing it as a punishment, which of course you've been through hell. Um, whatever trauma it is that you're dealing with, it has been a hellish journey. But I guess it's that question in the back of your mind is, how can I grow from this? What can I learn from this? And if you're interested enough in that, you might find yourself on that healing journey sooner than you think. Yeah, I guess the difference with us is that I was just 13 and you were an adult. So I had no interest to be curious at that age. I just wanted to shut it down and not look at it. So maybe it took for me to be an adult or a more mature adult for me to see, you know, when I do this work, um, more of me comes in when I shift that part. And I got really intrigued by that because it occupied so much space inside of me. It affected everything I did every day. And I noticed when I did a huge piece of work, the massive shift that came and And I liked that more of me, I think before the 13 year old could show up and an aspect of me that I had never met before. So that was always interesting. So I guess I got curious as I got more able to see that actually healing is, is a really good thing. <laughs> when I got past the, let's not look at this ever, let's just forget it happened. So, but I think because I was a child really, that's why I just was never curious to start with. But in the end, Definitely, it was like, it's quite fascinating, really, isn't it? It is. And you mentioned, you know, don't compare yourself. You couldn't have dealt with this when your children were very little because of the demands of motherhood. And healing does take time and it takes effort. It takes application um, because you've got to be more awake and aware of who you are and how you're showing up in the world. And I do think that whatever trauma you're dealing with, there's a process of grief and loss that you're going through. And, and that takes time and situations and circumstances will also either help or hinder you to get on with the journey slower or quicker. And that's okay. Uh, you know, you may be in a situation where you have very young children, or you may have um, elderly parents that you're looking after. Um, you, you could be in any kind of situation where maybe you don't have a big support structure uh, that you can lean in to while you're going through the tricky healing process because it has its ups and its downs. It's not a straight line. Um, it'll have little curves along the way that'll take you on detours. That makes it interesting, but it also can make it a bit complicated too. Yeah, absolutely, because you never know what you're going to find. <laughs> That's a good thing as well. Yeah, when I think about you, you know, when you when you started peeling the layers away for your primary trauma, you found that there were secondary and tertiary traumas as well that kind of had a similar theme, but you uncovered more. And that was part of the learning journey for you. So in your podcast called Unbroken, Healing Through Storytelling, you always begin with this question. What does unbroken mean to you? So I would like to close off this interview uh -huh. by asking you. <laughs> oh, and you've turned the tables on me. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very clever. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you use that question in your, in your interviews? And, and what does unbroken mean to you? Well, obviously, it's the name of my book and it's kind of been my brand. And I do believe that none of us are broken beyond repair. 
But actually, it wasn't the original title of my book. My book was going to be called 44 Bows because that's what I did. I counted over and over and over again to keep me sane and to avoid what they were doing. Okay, sorry, I just have to stop you there because I've read your book. So I understand what 44 Bows mean. Can you just tell our listeners where the bows were in the room? It was a wallpaper border back in the late 1970s, 80s. It was made out of pink and grey bows and it ran around the top of the walls. So I counted them over and over and over again. And there were 44. And, and that's really, what you focused on while, focused while on. you were being gang raped for five hours. Yeah, I did it in English. I did it in Hebrew. I tried to do it in French. Uh, there's 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so I could do it twice. Uh, so yeah, I just counted it over and over again until it didn't have an effect. But that number has now followed me my life. It's become a kind of a magical number for me. It's a very reassuring number. Um, and I was never into numerology, so it's, it's odd. But yeah, I, I see it everywhere all the time. Well, no, my friends see it. They'll send me receipts. I thought of you, my bill came to £4.44 or, you know, it just comes. But anyway, so they changed the name to Unbroken and I thought, oh, but there's a film, there's other books called Unbroken. They said, oh, well, sometimes that can be a good thing. They'll find your book by mistake. But actually, I've I've grown quite fond of the word Unbroken because I think, to me, it really means that I felt broken for so, so many, many years. And I could never have imagined ever feeling whole or more than or, you know, good about myself. But with the right effort and the right support and the right love and the right self-support and the right self-care and the right self-love, we can definitely get to a pace of unbroken. And so we we never really got broken because when we were never broken in the first place it just felt like we were broken and yeah I remain unbroken and stronger from it from what's happened to me oh Madeleine thank you so much I think you've given us so much hope and what I take away from this conversation is that to be broken or unbroken is a choice and so is connecting your head and your body back together again that too is a choice and we can choose post-traumatic growth. And in post-traumatic growth, we can also rediscover our worthiness. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm going to share your contact details and your podcast link in the show notes. And to all of our listeners, please try and get hold of a copy of Madeleine's book uh, because it is so well worth a read. And to our listeners, please send through your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to info at nickybush.com. You're invited to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.